Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. Well, when we talk about transportation and transportation infrastructure, we often hear about the push for the Broadway corridor, the subway, uh, whether it be to Arbutus or all the way to UBC. We talk a lot about SkyTrain in Surrey pushing that line all the way to Langley. What we don't often focus on is somehow linking the Fraser Valley and Metro Vancouver, making it easier for people to travel between the two places. Well, the mayor of Abbotsford would like to pay a lot more attention to that. Henry Braun joins me on the line now. Mayor Braun, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Good morning, Jill, and thank you for the invite. Glad to be with you. Why do you think we don't focus so much on linking the Fraser Valley and uh, to parts of Metro Vancouver? Partly probably because we haven't made a lot of noise about it, and uh, I've started to amp that up a bit uh, because there is... uh, Uh, 320,000 people that live west of the uh, Langley border, which, of course, is a boundary line between the FERD and uh, Metro Vancouver. And uh, when you add the Langleys to it, we're we're approaching 500,000 people that are in this part of the valley, and we have no transit options. We have a two-lane freeway that was built when I was uh, 12 years old. The population out here uh, is five times what it is when that freeway was built. And Highway 1, which is our trade corridor into Metro Vancouver, the ports, has become a parking lot almost every day. Absolutely. And anybody that drives on that, if they have to for work or they drive on it commuting or to get for whatever reason, I think, knows all too well the bottlenecks and how it slows down. What would you propose? What do you think would be the the answer as far as transportation linking or going uh, Abbotsford, Chilliwack and linking with Metro Vancouver? Well, well, it's really a two-pronged approach. Uh, One is uh, we have to... uh, uh, eliminate the bottlenecks on Highway 1. Uh, tra- you know, never mind the population has increased five times out here um, uh, since uh, the early 60s, but transport truck traffic has increased on Highway 1 by 40% over the last two years. So there's a lot of goods and services that are coming, trying to get into Port Metro Vancouver or the other way around, coming from the port back out to the province. So I've advocated that the highway really should have been widened to four lanes in each direction, but we'll, we'll be happy if we get three. But on top of that, we need some transit options to get people out of their vehicles that don't actually want to drive uh, to points west. There is no options for people south of the Fraser. And we know that in the next 20 years, 25 years, there's a million point two million more people coming to south of the Fraser. That means Surrey, both Langley's, Abbotsford, Chilliwack. If we think we have a mess now, uh, I don't know what it's going to look like even five years out, and it's going to take that long to get this planned. And do you think there there is an appetite if there was a train, say something similar to in Toronto, the GO train that links people with, with Mississauga or places outside of the city? And, and I mean, they're even expanding that to now to go further out. If there was something like that service, do you think there would be an appetite to, for people to use it? Absolutely. And I think if, uh, you know, I'm sure that somebody in senior levels of government is polling this. I know there's there's some traction for this. Uh, I know it's on the Premier's radar, and uh, I'm told that it might even be on the Prime Minister's radar already, but it needs to be done. I mean, half the population of B.C. lives in the uh, between Hope and Squamish, and 
our uh, transportation our modes of transportation suck for people to get we, we can't even ramp up our bus transit on highway one because they're stuck in traffic too so who wants to take a, a bus into uh, i mean we're going to connect to Lougheed, uh, SkyTrain. Uh, the city of, of uh, Chilliwack and Abbotsford are paying that uh, totally without any funds from senior levels of government to connect to SkyTrain because there's the demand is unbelievable out here for it. So I really think that it needs to be a two-pronged approach, and uh, this should have been done 10, 15 years ago. Uh, what do you think the cost would be, or are we even at the place of having an estimate on what that might cost? Well, I was uh, I owned uh, uh, a railway construction transit, so we built uh, a good uh, portion, probably thirty percent of SkyTrain in Vancouver, LRT in uh, Calgary and Edmonton, Go Transit in Toronto. Uh, before I sold my company and retired, and thought I was going to go do some other things, and ended up in this position. <laughs> Uh, but I'm told, and I've been out of the business for almost 20 years, or 18 years, whatever it is, uh, but I'm told that that's probably in the 7 to $8 billion, I've heard a figure as high as $9 billion, um, to fix our transportation. And I know that the private sector is actually working on some things, uh, and they may present to government, I don't know. Uh, so, so the BC uh, Business Council has been working on this as well. The, when I quoted this uh, seven to eight billion dollars, that came from a BC Council op-ed piece uh, probably a year ago, and um, I think they do their homework pretty well. So I don't think that number is far off. And would it be on existing rail lines, or are there even existing rail lines that it could uh, that it could use? Or are we talking about building something from scratch? No, uh, I, I think it's going to have to be from scratch. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about rail in the valley using the old BC Hydro rail line uh, or what is now known as Southern Rail. But the problem with that line is there's a seven-mile stretch through Langley that CP uh, Rail um, has sole exclusive uh, operation uh, rights in perpetuity to get their, their well, not just CP. So CN uses that line as well to get to Delta Port. And that's the bo- that's the problem. Now, if somebody, I've said, you know, people think I'm just against it. Uh, I've said to people, well, if you can go figure out how to do that with CP Rail, who has exclusive operation uh, rights and, in perpetuity, uh, I'm all ears. But that's a single track. It would have to be double track. But the problem with the line is it doesn't go through the population centers. Hmm. So we know that SkyTrain is going to come eventually to City of Langley. So if it gets that far, then probably Fraser Highway is where it ought to connect uh, to Abbotsford. Uh, but those are engineering uh, issues and, and problems, uh, not problems, but issues that need to be solved by engineers. Uh, I'm not an engineer. But once it gets that close, uh, you know, 16th Avenue uh, might be a, a, an option as well. I think eventually, 20 years from now, there should be a direct link between Abbotsford Airport and the Vancouver International Airport because uh, our, our uh, passenger, we've gone through a million passengers and uh, there's a million and a half people living within 35, 40 minutes of our airport. Uh, in the future, that's going to ramp up big time too. Uh, absolutely. And just to be clear, so were you, are you talking about the interurban rail line? Because that's the one that's yes. been floated before, saying that that's, yep. that wouldn't yep, that's, be the, uh, the w- wouldn't be something that you could just flip a switch and suddenly put no. the trains on that. No, that's uh, much more complex than people are making it out to be. 
And I don't have time to unpack that, but I've said this before. I'd be happy to talk to anybody that wants to talk to me about it. Phone my office, and I'll explain to you the difficulties uh, with that. Uh, but if they could get Southern Rail uh, to... Uh, uh, well, anyway, so yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, I'll end up going down a turkey trail that I can't actually explain <laughs> in five minutes. No, absolutely. But I mean, you make a very. I mean, one of the the, the most sim- more simpler points is the train line has to go through the populated areas. People. The whole point exactly. is to get people on the trains to get them so that they can access it and get to, into where wherever they're going. And we don't want people. I mean, if you make it so people have to drive a huge distance to get there, it kind of defeats yep. the whole purpose. And people want to get out of their cars. And and the pollution that is happening when everything is stalled on, you know, the GHG emissions, I mean, it's just crazy. I I have advocated for this when I was in the private sector, uh, probably 18 years ago when I first started talking about a double rail rail line right down the middle of the freeway. And I said to the government of the day, don't forget to design your new bridge in such a way that it can take commuter traffic and connect it to... To our trans to SkyTrain, and of course that never happens. So, I don't know which way the costing, which way would be more expensive, but it, it certainly doesn't need to be SkyTrain out here. Um, I, I think out here, I much would prefer uh, uh, surface rail. So LRT, you can you can a uh, million dollars goes way farther. First of all, uh, by building a surface rail than uh, putting it up in the air. Oh, absolutely. It, I mean, it almost seems like a no-brainer. If you offer people a train where they get on the train in the morning, you can work on your laptop, you can have your coffee. I mean, it's an hour or whatever it would be commuting, but yep. it's not an hour lost out of your day where you're stuck driving in traffic. It's an hour where you can be quite productive and make it part of your day. I mean, it seems like such a no-brainer that that would be the direction we should go. Absolutely, and, and it just uh, improves our quality of life because, you know, uh, I know people in in the trades who won't actually bid on anything uh, uh, west of uh, Surrey because they can't. You can't pay me enough. They say to go there because I can't get home. I can't go to my kids' soccer practice or basketball or hockey or you name it. And uh, they're on the road for four hours. Uh, you know, round trip. West Coast Express works wonderful. The problem is you can't get all-day service there so you have to have an all-day meeting for that to work or you work downtown Um, and and I take it uh, maybe once a month when I have an all-day meeting in Vancouver but if I have a meeting at uh, 10 o'clock and and it's over at 11 I can't get back till 4 you know the first train back is at 4 so that doesn't help it helps people on the North Shore but uh, uh, south of the Fraser is where the population is and and that's going to ramp up tremendously because people want to live here and so we've got affordable housing affordability issues that are tied into all of this and this just seems to me to solve a lot of problems by doing two things widening that freeway so that our trans transportation network isn't bogged down because the chambers of commerce canada the canadian and bc have said that the cost to our economy annually is over a billion dollars with a b we have to fix this because this has economic ramifications downstream that aren't going to look pretty either. All right. Do you get the sense then, and you kind of mentioned this off the top, is there a renewed interest in at least looking at this and being serious about this as an option? Yes, I I think there is. I think the current government, uh, Premier Horgan and his government are looking at, I know they're looking at it because we've talked about it. And uh, I, I sense that there is some traction. Uh, I also recognize that they want to maintain their AAA credit rating. 
Um, and so whatever they do, they have to work within that framework. Otherwise, the Premier has told me that uh, that will be an additional $300 million interest charge if they lose that AAA credit reading. So I get that part too. But this is about long-range planning. This is about some bold political will to do things that should have been done a long time ago. And I, I actually think that this Premier is up for that. All right. Well, we will leave it there and uh, see what happens next. Uh, Mayor Henry Braun, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Well, we often talk about housing, affordable housing, different types of housing, how to build more and build it faster. So when you see a piece of land that's been undeveloped or just sitting there for quite some time, a lot of people start asking questions about why it is like that. Uh, there was a story in the Vancouver Sun just a couple of days ago about the East Van, the Kootenai Loop, and some of the history there. Interesting history for sure. And joining me to talk a little bit more about that is planner, architect, Professor Michael Geller, who comes on the show quite often. Michael, great to have you back on the program. It's always nice to be with you. Uh, so what do you think about this? And maybe we'll start with a little history, because this, as the article points out, is a part of the Kootenai Loop. It was almost developed, but then it wasn't. Yeah. So in 2008, when TransLink was uh, seeking a bo- private board of directors, I was invited uh, by Mike Harcourt and uh, Gordon Price to submit my credentials to serve on the board, and I had uh, I was shortlisted, and I remember talking to the selection committee and saying that if I was on the board, one of the things I wanted to see was TransLink to get involved in the development industry, not necessarily building condos and selling condos, but partnering development, because so many of my friends had made a lot of money at, because of TransLink's policies. And so, I mean, that's 12 years ago, And the question remains, should or could TransLink become more actively involved in development to generate revenues to improve the transit system? And the reason why this is worth discussing is throughout the world, transit authorities are often generating great amount of money through development. So I love the fact that you want to talk about this because here's an excellent example of how TransLink could play a role. And uh, in the article, too, uh, there's there's some reaction from TransLink uh, saying that it's not really on the table right now or it's not really high up on the list, but there is the possibility of exploring it more. What do you think about that? I think I hope that a lot of people will say you have a real estate department. And in fact, there is a division at TransLink. But generally speaking, what it does is acquires properties that it needs for, as it puts it, transit-related purposes. And indeed, when Ian Jarvis was the former CEO, I once met with him and Colin Hansen because he was telling me they couldn't get into development because their letters patent didn't really authorize it. And I said, Colin, why don't you initiate a change in their letters patent so that, in fact, they can get into the property development business? And again, the Kootenai Loop, for anyone who knows it, is a perfect example of a piece of property with tremendous amount of transit and virtually very, very little development, uh, both on the site and around the site. 
And so what would be the difference then, or what would be, I guess, the benefit of TransLink and expanding the real estate division and doing this uh, under uh, under its watch uh, rather than selling the property and having it developed or having the province or other, somebody else develop it and then also putting that money into trans into transportation? Well, you're right. I mean, in certain situations, they could make money if they were to, say, take a piece of property, get approval for 285 rental units and then sell it to a developer and let him take the responsibility. But they don't even do that. As you may recall, I worked up at Simon Fraser University for seven years uh, developing a new town. And the board of governors of the university was pretty clear. Geller, they said, we don't want to get in the condo development business and so forth. Indeed, we're not even sure we want to manage market rentals. But SFU did manage to make a a good amount of money by doing overall planning, creating uh, value in its sites, partnering with uh, developers in some instances, and in others, actually undertaking the development, in the case of a, a rental building, where they kept all the retail space. So there are ways that TransLink could participate in property development without taking on the full range of risks that we often associate with, say, a condo developer. And you mentioned this off the top, but this is something, it sounds like it is done in other cities and in other countries. In fact, anyone who is listening to us from Hong Kong knows that in Hong Kong, uh, I think most of the revenue doesn't come from the fare box. The the revenue there comes from developing property in in Japan. the, the, there, the uh, transit authorities are actively involved. And a number of years ago, uh, when Christy Clark was premier, TransLink did uh, hire a vice president of development. His name was Phil Christie. I remember going on <laughs> Christy Clark's show to talk about it um, because I thought it was a good thing. But he wasn't really quite the right guy, and I think the board was reluctant. And indeed, I've often spoken to some of the other uh, directors about this, and they say, no, it's, it's wrong. In fact, one, one, one accountant uh, said to me, it would be like insider trading for TransLink to, to make money from developing land around its stations. I said, don't be silly. That's exactly what it should be doing. Um, because we need, as others, as one of your earlier interviews said today, whether it's uh, train lines out to the valley or others, transit improvements, we desperately need money to fund transit improvements. And the one thing we do know is that affordable housing and transit go together like love and marriage. You know, you can't have one without the other. <laughs> but uh, does that raise another issue, though, in would TransLink then, because we are talking about prime pieces of real estate that are next to transit hubs and making them making it very easy to access. So would TransLink then be would it be not forced, but would there be a, an, an emphasis on rental housing or housing where perhaps TransLink wouldn't make as much revenue? Well, there could be a variety of things, just as, I mean, in some instances, they could do development. And again, we're talking, in my mind, not just the transit station itself, but all the, some, in many instances, the surrounding land. Because, uh, there's, to my mind, TransLink should be going out when they know there's going to be a new line one day out to uh, the North Shore and where there might be new stops they should be starting to acquire that land. Now, they have done that to some degree, 
but generally just for the station itself. They've never tried to accumulate additional land which they could make money from. And in that case, it might be a mixture. But in the case of the Kootenai Loop, and I'm so glad you did highlight this one, you know, that the proposal there was to build some more affordable rental housing. And you might have some retail as well. And these are uses that are much easier, I think, to develop and manage over time than taking the risk of building condos and worrying about whether you've got the right mix of one and two bedroom suites for sale. Right. And and it does make sense because we talk about it so often that there, there, there is this lack of rental housing, this lack of housing next to transit. It does seem like it would make perfect sense to, to, to try that out. All over the world, Jill, transit authorities are doing this because it does make perfect sense. One of the few places where we should, you know, which isn't doing it to the same degree, is in Vancouver. And uh, where we have, you know, either the second highest or amongst the highest housing costs in the world and, uh, and a desperate need to fund improved transit. I mean, we are going in the right direction. Uh, you know, I had a wonderful conversation the other week with the former chair of my board, a prominent lawyer, who was telling me that he and his wife were waiting for the bus. I said, David... You were waiting for the bus. You take the bus. Yes, he said, he does take the bus. And indeed, I think increasingly more and more people are taking transit. It's no, the bus is no longer the loser cruiser, as the students at SFU called it. And, um, you know, I think more and more it's becoming an integral part of our lives. And, uh, I actually think Uber will benefit, uh, the transit use in some respects because people can take a, a Uber lift from their home to the to the SkyTrain station and then take the SkyTrain. We're going to start living in Vancouver in the future like people in London and Paris and Amsterdam and other cities do where there's far less reliance on the private automobile and Translink could benefit significantly by making money through property development on and around its stations. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Interesting idea. We'll see what happens uh, with that in the future. Michael Geller, thank you so much. Thanks for your interest on this. Well, Richmond City Council is taking another look at birthright tourism and actually reaching out to the federal government to see if something can be done about the practice. And joining me on the line is Carol Day, a city councillor in Richmond. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, good morning and thank you for having me, Jill. What is the latest uh, that council has done as far as trying to, to stop the practice of people uh, coming specifically to Richmond to have children so they can become uh, Canadian or have access to Canadian citizenship? Well, I wrote a motion which was supported by most of council and will go to the rest of council all of tomorrow, or t- sorry, tomorrow night. And it, basically we're asking the federal government to please change the immigration laws because Richmond's become ground zero for birth tourism and something has to be done because the long range effects are going to be devastating. And how so? Well, I mean, you think about it, 15 to 18 years from now, you're going to have a wave of uh, young people coming and um, they'll be going to our universities. They'll be, you know, basically taking advantage of services that have never been paid for. I mean, the taxpayers of uh, Canada are ultimately on the hook for this. And, I mean, you can get a university education for 10% of what an international student would pay. So that affects uh, everybody. Uh, But how do you know that for sure that we're going to see, uh, because just because somebody has that access, it doesn't mean they're absolutely going to use it. 
Well, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, 23.1% of babies born in Richmond Hospital are to foreigners that have come from another country. And when you look on the Chinese websites for birth tourism, they advertise all the benefits of having that Canadian birth certificate. And they're spending between ten dollars to $70,000 for these birth certificates. I think it's reasonable to assume they'll be back to take advantage of the benefits. Uh, Richmond has tried to crack down on the businesses surrounding this, uh, be it the places where women can come and stay or people that help uh, give them access to this. Uh, What has happened on that front? Well, our bio officers are doing the best they can, but the problem is try catching people uh, when they're having basically food services, they're providing midwives, they're providing mammary gland dredging and placenta capsules. I mean, we don't have the resources to send out bylaw officers to do investigations. So the smartest way to deal with this is at the top. And, you know, twice the uh, federal government has tabled petitions from one M- MP, Alice Wong, and another, Joe Pesasolito. This happened in 2018 and again in 2016. We need help from the federal government. We can't handle this on our own. And is the concern then, because a lot of this is happening in Richmond, then because we've also heard uh, issues about the hospital being, uh, um, uh, being overcrowded, uh, being packed with people that are coming to Richmond to do this. Is that the issue too? Because I mean, Richmond itself, it's not to suggest even if people do come back here in 15 or 18 years, uh, there's nothing to, to say they'll be coming back to Richmond specifically. So is that the concern that your city has? Yes, today. Thank you, Joe, for bringing that up. Um, right now, uh, people that are born and raised in Richmond are being sent to Vancouver and North Vancouver to have their children because the hospital um, and maternity ward is full. And Dr. Catherine Ross, the president of Doctors of BC, I'm quoting her, said, we're at a critical tipping point, so it's important that some higher authority takes this on. And we're, we're in a, a critical situation here, and it's just not right. And keeping in mind that our hospital staffing is based on our census. So when uh, the maternity ward is overwhelmed with people coming in ready to pay to have their baby, then we're just not set up for that. And, and further to that, the hospital has got $2 million in unpaid bills. Hmm. Uh, which is a whole other issue completely. Um, in the United States, the, the U.S. State Department recently did uh, stop or it's, it's cracking down on women who are pregnant uh, from getting tourist visas. And, and that's, that doesn't seem like that's really that new. I, I know people get stopped at the border and, and turned back in, in those scenarios, too. Is that something, though, you would like to see Canada do? Well, I think we have to until we can get the laws in place. I mean, at this point, you've got, I mean, down in the States, I mean, they're estimating up to 100,000 babies are born a year. So they're going to crack down on it by sending people back. Well, that has a direct effect on Canada because uh, while the States is probably most people's first choice, Canada is absolutely their second choice. And so what would you like to see the federal government do at this point? The same as Europe. I mean, if you look to all of the European countries don't allow um, automatic citizenship, and that includes New Zealand and also in addition to that, New Zealand and Australia and South Africa, we need to make sure that one of the parents is at least a landed immigrant and has lived in Canada for a number of years or a Canadian citizen. It's just not right to be handing out these passports and birth certificates to everybody who's just born here after being here for a couple of months. So, no, we need to make sure that we have the same rules as Europe and make a level playing field. And at this point, then, if, as long as the federal law stays the way it is, then are any of these side businesses in Richmond, are they actually breaking the law or are they technically allowed to be doing that? 
Well, this is the problem is you have to, first of all, you have to try to prove it. So I've been mulling this around for the last couple of days, and I wonder if the thing to do isn't to declare birth terrorism illegal. That way, we, if, if people are even advertising the business, we could put charges on it. But we're in talks with staff right now to understand how, what we can do, because many of the services that they provide in these birth tourism businesses are quite odd. I mean, they, they, they advertise guaranteed you know, birth certificates gets guaranteed, um, you know, referral to doctors and guaranteed, you know, class A food. I mean, they're, they're actually making a, a meal for every single day for all of these um, customers. Do they have food safe? Do they have a license? I don't think so. And so we, we probably need to give our bylaw officers more tools to crack down on this. But it's such a huge issue. It's, it's very difficult. And do you have the numbers or are the numbers available? Because, I mean, it's been going on for years. Has it become uh, more popular? Yeah, well, there's two doctors in Richmond Hospital that between 2014 and 2019 delivered over 1,300 babies, just two doctors. And we know that it's about, um, you know, seven or 800 a year for sure that are being born in Richmond. But what about all the other cities in the lower mainland? Like, we need to know the numbers. And when you look at the numbers from the states, when they're talking, it could be as much as 100,000 people per year being born in the United States to foreigners. So that's why they're taking the temporary step, I think, of, of, of turning people back at the border. And this, I would imagine they're going to be changing their you know, laws eventually. Uh, where, where does it stand then with council? Is, uh, do you have the support of your fellow councillors? Yeah, we had a majority vote uh, at the last meeting uh, with just one dissenting vote. And it wasn't that um, she was against birth tourism being stopped. She's just concerned about refugees that are you know, legitimately going to be living here for the rest of their lives. And but I do have faith that the, the minister um, will make rules that allow for uh, people who are here under, you know, the stateless folks and uh, people that, that are refugees from other countries. So I'm not saying that, you know, nobody can have a baby from a foreign country, but we certainly need to um, deal with the people who are just here temporarily to take advantage of our very lax laws. All right, uh, Carol, we'll leave it there and see what happens uh, at Council tomorrow. But thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for the, uh, taking interest. If it wasn't for the news agencies uh, taking this on, there wouldn't be anything happening at all. So thank you. The 54th Annual Variety Show of Hearts Telethon is returning today. It starts up. It will be live from 9.30 this morning until 5.30 this evening. A great day, a ton of energy and just some amazing things happening. So let's bring in the CEO of Variety, Callie Wesson, to join us now and give us a bit of a preview on what's going to be taking place. Callie, thanks so much for taking a few minutes. Thanks, Jill. I'm so excited to be here. It's awesome. We're going to have an amazing day today. So what's going to happen? I've had a few people uh, emailing wanting to know what the what the day is, how it's going to unfold. So it's going to be an amazing day. Uh, we have groups like the Tenors playing. Uh, we have Said the Whale, our local ba- favorite local band. And, yeah, it's going to be huge. My favorite part of Telethon, though, is really being able to share the stories uh, of the kids we impact. We help tons of kids across the province, and it's really exciting to be able to share those stories with British Columbia because it, without 
all of British Columbia coming together today, we would not be able to help as many kids as we do. So it's 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 amazing. Uh, we talked to, with, with a mom yesterday on the show whose son has been really helped. He was able to go to a school that's helped him just come out of his shell and be so much happier and more productive. Uh, what story sticks out for you or good? Can you share a story with us, so one that, that yeah, is top of mind I- for you? Yeah, when I first started with Variety, we were doing um, an event where we had a mom speaking, and she was talking about how thanks to speech therapy, her daughter was was able to speak. And then as she was speaking, she went further, and she said, you know, I had actually given up on my daughter ever speaking because I couldn't afford speech therapy. And to me, that just has stuck with me through the four years I've been with Variety because we are giving parents and kids the tools to thrive. I'm a mom. You know, everyone who's a parent or has connections to kids knows that parenting can be stressful sometimes. When you have a kid with special needs, you're at appointments. You're, you know, you're working so hard with that child to to help that child thrive. The last thing we want for these parents is to have the financial burden or worry that they can't afford even a wheelchair for their child or hearing aids or just those things we we take so for granted that we think are just accessible to every everyone. They're not, and so that's why. It's so important to me that Variety's here and that on Telethon Day we all come together to ensure that no parent has to worry about not having money to send their child to that special school or have physiotherapy or whatever that child needs. We want BC's kids to be amazing and to thrive, and that's why we're all here. And I'm glad you brought that up as an example because we do have a lot of examples and, and much like yesterday where a child was sent to to a specific school that was out of financial reach for his mom and like you said about speech therapy but it is also things, one of the stories on the website about helping a family get a converted van and an adaptive stroller which you might not think about but if that's out of reach for a family that's life-changing. Yeah, and if you if you have a child who has mobility challenges, getting that child out of a wheelchair into a into a uh, car seat is can sometimes be impossible and even traumatic for the child. So you you don't do things that you normally would do with a family, like go to a park on a Sunday or even a medical appointment. So those lifts, this or a Sunshine Family Van program or the Sunshine Coach program, which has adaptive. Uh, access for wheelchairs is it's just so important because really you just want just want families to live exceptional lives and to be able to do everything they need to do and you know um i think of another story of a mom we gave a sunshine family van to in williams lake and her her son had recovered from cancer and then he had a stroke and he was he he was um in a wheelchair and just to get him to appointments would have been impossible without an accessible vehicle. And so these things that you we take for granted um, sometimes are impossible. And, and for, for a parent, an accessible wheelchair lift can be some, around $7,500. And that's it's just not affordable to, to most families, especially a lot of families living in the lower mainland, because we all know how incredibly expensive it is to live here. So... Yeah, so it is exceptional the 
um, what our donors do for our kids and our families. And we're just so grateful um, to be able to have this day. And, you know, it's a fun day because we have so many great acts. Paul Green, um, I chatted with him yesterday. He's going to be in the, there today performing. And just, yeah, we just have a really great lineup this year. So not only as well we're sharing the stories, we're also um, having fun because life is about having fun. And we want these kids to enjoy the day when they're here as well. So. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned, too, I know you've, you've only been with Variety for a few years, but it's changed so much over the years as far as venue and how uh, the telethon is put on. But I think what hasn't changed is that energy in the room and what people are doing. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, the, the amazing thing about Variety is, and the telethon is I think anyone who's grown up in B.C., um, has some significant story. I was chatting with a lady today who's on our gold panel, and she actually performed at the telethon at the Queenie Theatre when she was eight as part of her dance troupe. So it is, uh, everyone has these significant stories, you know, people who saved up their pennies with the hope to get on the telethon when they were young. So that energy and that vibe is still in, in here at the Hard Rock, and it's, yeah, I mean, if we, you know, we even have team members at Variety and, and people who, you know, they've grown up with the telethon and that's part of the excitement of being uh, at Variety is being part of this really special day. So, so it, it's, it's amazing. It's so exciting. And I'm just so happy to be part of today. And I'm looking forward to an exceptional total at the end of the day. Absolutely. So how do people, yeah. uh, if they want to still get involved, uh, like you said, it's happening. So it's 930 to 530 at the Hard Rock Casino. Yeah. Uh, what do people do if they want to, to tune in or donate or, or, or learn more about it? Yeah, so you can go on to Global BC uh, and watch the telethon. You can They're live streaming it too, of course. Um, you're welcome to come down to the Hard Rock Casino uh, casino today to watch if you you're welcome to do that and if you want to support you can call 310 kids or donate online at variety.bc.ca and if you want to make an instant donation right now you can text uh kids to four five six seven eight to make an automatic twenty dollar donation so yeah lots of ways to get involved and you can always visit our website variety.bc.ca all the information is there All right. I know it's going to be a very busy uh, but very uh, fun and rewarding day. Callie, thank you so much for taking a few minutes before everything gets crazy and chaotic down there. Yeah. Thanks, Jill. This was amazing, and we appreciate everything you do for us, too. So thank you so much. Well, as you likely know from hearing it in the news, on Friday, a B.C. Supreme Court judge ruled in favor of Uber in its fight with the city of Surrey. And that means the city of Surrey bylaw officers that were ordered to give Uber drivers tickets. That has stopped. The mayor, Doug McCallum, released a statement shortly after that court ruling saying that it is time to move on and that he is looking forward to working with other mayors to come up with an intermunicipal license for all rideshare drivers. But the case still has, I think, a few people wondering how much did it cost taxpayers to take this fight all the way to the B.C. Supreme Court? And where do we go from here? Well, let's bring in Brenda Locke, who is a Surrey City Councillor. Councillor Locke, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. What are your thoughts on the fact that this case even had to go or went to the B.C. Supreme Court? Well, I think, um, you know, first of all, you can't separate the Uber issue from the police transition issue in Surrey because that's the mayor's support base and 
that's what we saw play out on December 16th. Those were primarily drivers that were in the, the room that were, that were causing all that chaos. So I guess, first of all, um, this is a mayor who uh, supported or maybe even instructed bylaw officers to obtain fake IDs with city credit cards. I mean, we have to to know that that was city credit cards that bought that. Then they lured Uber drivers. And, you know, at a time when other cities were getting on board, letting the province do their good work and in, in coming up with a plan for Uber, uh, our mayor decided he was going to start ticketing these uh, these drivers. And that came up in court as well and was talked about in court also. Do we, uh, there were about, I think Uber said outside of court that he knew of about a couple dozen tickets or a couple dozen drivers who had been given these tickets. Uh, do we have any idea or we or do we know if those tickets are now going to be cancelled? We, we don't. I suspect they will. But I can tell you, I have been asking that very question uh, from city staff, and they haven't given us the, um, the actual numbers yet. Uh, we're hoping to have that. I can also tell you that last September, uh, I asked staff to do some kind of plan moving forward with Uber. And we saw nothing. So there's been a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes secretive stuff, which is pretty normal in Surrey, happening uh, between staff and the mayor's office. Uh, What kind of secretive stuff? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, probably including counsel in a decision as big as as this, um, moving to Uber would have been a, a good start. They didn't. Uh, we never had a corporate report on, on how we were going to deal with rideshare. Uh, we never voted on anything. It never came to council. So those kind of things, uh, and similarly with the police transition, we never reviewed or had access to any of that information prior to it going to the province. I think that's a big problem in the city of Surrey. And that was something that was also echoed by your fellow councillor, Linda Annis, who spoke about this on Friday as well, because I had asked her, did council have any idea that bylaw officers were going to be going out and doing this? And she said, no. That And, and were you of the same uh, same opinion there that, that nobody told anybody else on council that this was going to happen? No, not at all. Um, we had no idea. We found out quite after the fact. And... Uh, asked for an explanation, no explanation came. Will it be possible, do you think, to find out how much the court case cost? You know, we will demand that. There's no question. We have to know. The citizens and residents of Surrey want to know. Um, it's, it's a very small group of people that are really fighting against Uber. The vast, vast majority really want Uber. And, um, you know, transportation infrastructure in Surrey is sadly lacking. So any uh, opportunity we get is, is great. Uh, I spoke with a taxi driver outside of Surrey Central Station on Friday as well, and he was very much of the mind. He said, we, we knew they weren't going to be successful, and he said, we as taxi drivers have been talking about this. We know Uber's coming, and we know that rideshare is here. But he said the, the thing that he is upset about is, and he happened to be driving a, an accessible cab, he said, mm-hmm. it's still, it's so not fair, he said, because of the insurance costs that are different, the the uh, 
mandatory accessibility cabs for taxis, boundaries he would like to see erased so that taxis don't have to deadhead. Uh, is there talk of that or is that, that even a conversation, do you think, have, being had in Surrey right now? Well, you know, that's not a Surrey conversation. That's a provincial conversation. And I do believe it is happening. So really, and and totally agree with him, the boundary issue should be erased. That's already ridiculous. But I think at one point, we have to let sort of, you know, the, the, the province deal with that with the taxi companies, because there's actually two taxi associations. There's the Vancouver guys, and there's the rest of BC. And the Vancouver guys are far more territorial about taking care of their area. They're, they have to learn to share a little bit more, too. And so uh, that's that's not a Surrey discussion. That's a bigger provincial discussion with the taxi industry. Right. Uh, does this, how this unfolded with the bylaw officers uh, giving the tickets and the court case, does it point to a bigger problem at Surrey City Council as far as the, as you mentioned, the secrecy and the efficiency with which that city is being run? It does to me. I mean, I have some serious concerns, and I can tell you if it turns out that any of these tickets or any of the um, warning letters or any of the city's resources in general were used to intimidate the Uber drivers, um, be it the taxi companies or whatever, then I think we have a whole different uh, discussion to have and, and to figure out where the mayor sits on this. And in your time on council or in Surrey, have you ever heard of, because what I found interesting about this too was the bylaw officers, and this is according to the drivers who were ticketed, they seem to think, at least in some cases, that, that the bylaw, or they said that the bylaw officers were apologetic and said, I don't want to be giving you this ticket, but I've been ordered to do this. Have you ever heard of something like that happening before? Never. And I can tell you those, like I said, those um, IDs, the fake IDs that um, that the bylaw officers used to register on um, on the Uber app, were bought with city credit cards. Like the whole thing just doesn't feel right. It's uh, it it just doesn't feel right. This is not how a big city like Surrey should be behaving, in my opinion. And I'm I'm quite frankly embarrassed by it. And you mentioned, too, and uh, Councillor Annis talked about this also, what, what almost seems to be getting lost in all of this, which is unfortunate because we're talking about rideshare, is the fact so many people who live in Surrey where there isn't transit, where there isn't another option, just want to be able to access the service. Right. And that is, that is the biggest issue, well, not the biggest, one of the many big issues we face in Surrey is transportation infrastructure. The entire South Fraser does not have access to public transit like other areas of, of Metro Vancouver. And so Uber is just an option, and the residents absolutely want it. We know that thousands, not just a few hundred, thousands of letters have come to us or email have come to us. We know they've also gone to uh, the province because um, we always get hooked in, it seems, and um, copied in on the email. So we know that the public really want this service. They need it. Uh, so what do you do now as far as, because I think Surrey taxpayers also do want to know how much money was spent to fight this. As a councillor then, do you, are you able to easily get access to that? Because I think you're, there are some of your fellow councillors that also want to do that. Do, do you have to bring a motion forward or how do you, how do you go about doing that now? You know, um, 
certainly, uh, I know that I have, and I and I believe other um, councillors have asked for that in by email to uh, city staff. Um, I would be surprised if it didn't come up on Monday. Uh, we have a council meeting this Monday, so I expect there will be some discussion around that. But we have to remember that only 50% of the council are supporting this mayor and supporting this action. Um, we have a council of, of eight councillors and one mayor, and uh, right now it is very much a split, uh, split council. And that's got to make it difficult to be a, a highly functioning or to be a, a streamlined, a productive council. You know, I mean, healthy debate is always great. I believe in that, and I believe that, um, you know, you have to have healthy debate. But what's happened in our council is uh, this mayor has tried to shut down debate. And so he does that by acting unilaterally, and he does that regularly and often. He did that with the police transition. We saw that. We saw that the public is not on side with that. We see that with Uber. We see the public is not on side with him on that. And when that happens, he uh, he acts unilaterally. Uh, so how confident are you, though, that city staff will give you that information on the cost of the court fight when they're not even telling, I don't think they've told you this, they certainly didn't answer any of the media requests. We just wanted to know if the tickets that had been issued would be cancelled. They wouldn't even tell us that. How confident are you that they'll tell you the cost? Well, you know, over 60 tickets were issued. So we know um, we know those tickets are issued. Uh, we just have to keep demanding that we have a right as councillors to know it's our it's actually our duty to find out that information and um, I know that I and some of uh, my other council colleagues are uh, working hard to ensure that the truth comes out on all of these issues. Do you know how many tickets exactly 60. how many? Uh, it was around 60 I don't know exactly but it's somewhere around 60. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Like you said, it will uh, very likely come up at council tomorrow. Uh, Councillor Brenda Locke, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill.